the, one of my favorite parts of the whole service on Sunday is all these little kids getting up saying, ah, it's time to go. And away they go. I don't know. Maybe it's me. Uh, definitely um, strange are my thoughts when it comes to a Sunday morning, I suppose. But um, that's not what we're here to talk about. We've been really reading through and studying through uh, the book of First Corinthians, if you maybe your first time, and I know that I say this every week uh, because we have new people here every week, and we have new people that are maybe just came a week or two and kind of figuring out where we're at and what's going on, and and so, uh, <clears throat> yeah, we've been in First Corinthians, and as I mentioned the last couple of weeks, uh, <clears throat> we're into the part of the book of First Corinthians where things get pretty spicy. I keep using that word. I use it on purpose because... Uh, this is where everybody gets a little flush, where there's uh, perhaps a little embarrassment that we're even talking about these things in church, where there's some uncomfortability. So I'm going to put everybody to ease and tell you all, <clears throat> there's probably nobody that's more uncomfortable with these topics than me. I'm just going to say that right up front. Uh, but, uh, you know, we don't just take our Bibles... We, just, we don't just take the Bible and say, well, we're not going to talk about that part, and toss it in the trash. Like God has something in this, and that's why we go chapter by chapter, verse by verse. There's times where we'll go topically and address specific things. Um, both, both ways of, of looking at the Scriptures or both ways of preaching through the Scriptures are, are totally good, totally, you know... Uh, uh, Jesus didn't really teach exegetically until when? Does anybody know? The Bible tells us when Jesus taught exegetically. Exegetically means you go verse by verse or chapter, book by book. Anybody know when? After the resurrection. After the resurrection. The Bible tells us that Jesus then, with his disciples, and the time that he spent with them, you know, in, in that post-resurrected condition, body... He went through the scriptures with them, teaching him all things that what? That point to him. So he went back through. So for three years, they kind of talked about things topically, so to speak. What was going on in the day, and why is it important, and what's God doing, and what's this kingdom all about, and how does it all fit together, and how does it all work out, and, and uh, what does this mean, or what does that mean, and there's healings, there's miracles, there's, there's all that goes with all that, and it's kind of like just like doing life together, and when you do life together, it doesn't happen like, you know, your, your life, my life doesn't reflect kind of an exegetical look through a book, necessarily. We bounce from topic to topic through life. We, talk, we bounce from issue to issue uh, through life in our marriages, in our families, in our communities. It wasn't until after the resurrection, really, that Jesus took him through the Scriptures page by page and taught him things. Uh, it's easy to really get confused when we look at 1 Corinthians, and there's a particular phrase here in chapter 5, or um, it's actually in verse 9, that... Uh, if you don't know the deeper backdrop of church history, we'll kind of leave you scratching your head. I'll just read it real quick where Paul says this, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people is what he's talking about. That's the topic for today. But he, he, he's talking about, so I wrote to you in, in, in some versions, say in a previous epistle, 
So wait a minute, this is the first book. This is 1 Corinthians, right? Isn't this the first letter? No, if you look on the screen, Michaela, do you, or Jenny, do you have that first uh, big thing up on the screen? Do you have anything on the screen? There we go. All right, I'll step out here and we'll all look together. I'll face it the same direction like we're doing the Pledge of Allegiance. So <clears throat> here's kind of a little bit of a breakdown. So Paul first visits Corinth, first brings the gospel, first makes converts and, and, and shares Jesus with people, and, and that's in that first visit. Then he gets a report back, right? Then he gets a report back, and he writes back a letter. Now, the verses that are up there kind of can be indicators of that. I'm not so sure that they are, but the guy that put this together thought that maybe they were. But there's a first letter. Then he gets a report back. That's what he mentions in chapter 1, where he says, I've heard reports about divisions from Chloe's household. So he gets this report back from Chloe saying, hey, uh, things are not good here. Things are not good here. And then there's a letter that comes from the Corinthians church. You'll see that's the blue part on the left. There's a letter, and they have some questions about certain things of the Christian life. Then he writes another letter, which is the second letter, which is actually 1 Corinthians, and he writes that letter, and he sends it with Timothy. We were talking about that a week or so ago. He sends it with Timothy, and he takes that second letter, tries to help kind of straighten things out in 1 Corinthians. Uh, not terribly successful. Then there's another report that's actually worse. So Paul writes a third letter, sends it with Titus, gets a report back that things are better. Then he writes a fourth letter, which we see is 2 Corinthians. He writes that fourth letter. So there's actually four letters. The second and the fourth are the ones that we call First and Second Corinthians. It can be really confusing. But if you think about it this way, there was four. We only have two. Only two made it into the canon of Scripture. And uh, that's what they went with. That's what we consider to be God's holy word. It's not that the other letters didn't have valuable things to say. Uh, we just don't have them. So which way they got lost. So First Corinthians, Corinthians then is kind of this mix of Paul dealing with, as I mentioned a bit ago, the things that were reported back and then also questions that they had. And if you look at the second chart, here's how it breaks down. 1 Corinthians is kind of this idea of reports and requests sandwiched between two major theological issues that he was concerned about. In chapter 1, if you'll recall, or it's good to go back and remind yourself, uh, he was, went to Corinth and preached Christ crucified. Christ crucified. There was a concern, if you will, that they were kind of forgetting about the crucifixion. Why were they kind of seemed to be like forgetting about that part? Because they were stacking all their wisdom in, uh, and, and their understanding, their knowledge was they were keep pulling more of the world's wisdom in. And, and Paul's saying, hold on a second. The real wisdom is in Christ. The real wisdom is understanding what he did for us. The real wisdom is in understanding what the crucifixion is all about. Don't forget about those things, chapter 1. Then sandwiched between that and at the end, chapter 15, some concern about understanding the resurrection. Sandwiched between those two things, there are these reports on the left and the requests on the right. And it's difficult sometimes to track Paul's writing because he kind of weaves these issues together. He'll talk about one, two, three, then another one, or request. He talks about three things on the report, and then he starts talking about marriage and divorce. 
He'd talk about idolatry and men and women's roles, stuff that was reported back to him. Then he'll talk about requests they had about, what about me, sacrifice to idols? How do we deal with this, all this stuff? He'll talk about the Lord's Supper. Then he go to one of their requests about, or curiosities about, what about the spiritual gifts? Tell us more about that. And so he does this kind of back and forth. If you can think about it in this light, we're on the second issue. We've talked for four weeks now about division. Actually, five weeks, I think, about division. And now he turns to immorality. This is why I say there's probably nobody that uh, gets as squeamish as I do in talking about this, and here's the reason why. There's a whole group of young people here. Uh, parents, I'm going to say this from the front end. This word is for you to teach to your kids. It's not somebody else's job. And uh, I always say, I've always said this, like being the youth pastor, I think is the trickiest spot in any church. Why? Because your responsibility of ministry is really somebody's area of responsibility in life. And so it's easy then to just rely on the youth pastor to do everything. It's easy to rely on somebody else to do what you have to do. Or as a, as a pastor in a church or a youth leader or whatever, it's easy to assume that. Or it's easy not to do enough, and you're never quite sure as a youth leader, the lines can get really blurry. And uh, I just want to say as a caveat from the, from the start, uh, this has a tendency to push into the PG-13 zone. And if you think, oh, not the Bible, um, the Bible goes long, bef- long past PG-13 in parts of it. Uh, it gets pretty graphic in spots. And God's got a reason for that. It's not because he's choosing to be crude. Uh, is He's displaying something. He's teaching something. He's exposing something that needs to be dealt with. That's kind of the story here. Grab your Bibles or look up on the screen. Open up your cell phones, your iPads, whatever you got in front of you that has God's Word on it. Chapter 5, let's dive right in and take a look. It says, actually... Re- It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as to even not even be named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. And you are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he has done this deed, that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For indeed, for I indeed, as absent in the body, but present in the spirit, have already judged as though I were present. Him who has done so, this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you gather together along with my spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you are truly unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my epistle, back to our earlier thought, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with the sexually immoral people. Yet certainly I did not mean the sexually immoral people of this world, or with the covetous, or the extortioners, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of this world, but now I've written to you not <clears throat> I've written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral, 
or covetous, or idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those who are on the outside? Do you not judge those on the inside? But those who are outside, of, outside God judges, therefore put away from yourselves the evil person. It's all got really real in the last minute. This is probably one of the most controversial passages in the Bible. Bar none. This is one where it gets real, real within the church. And, and, and how, are we to, uh, how are we to operate? How are we to carry on as God's family? How are we to uh, deal with these issues in our culture? They definitely dealt with them in the, theirs. We'll get to that. I think that there's a fundamental way, though, that we should be looking at this. And it's through examining the principles of what Paul is saying. It's through biblical principles of what, of what God has inspired the Apostle Paul to write down by way of correction, by way of, of, of understanding, by way of operation. And it's a little bit, I had this idea, and I shared this with the other guys on the elder board, that it's kind of, there, there's a slight difference, I would say, a slight difference between what I would call principles and what we would call policy. Now, policy's not bad, don't get me wrong. It's easy as a church, it's easy as a church board, or it's easy as a, as a family to say, you know, here's our policy about this, here's our policy about that, here's how we operate, you know. And <clears throat> so it's easy then in a policy type situation to just rely upon something that you decided a long time ago. That's not necessarily bad. The difference I want to highlight, though, is that when it comes to principles, God uses his principles to affect heart change. I wrote it down this way. Uh, I'll give you a quick definition of principle. A fundamental truth or proposition that serves as the foundation for a system of belief or behavior or for a chain of reasoning. That's kind of the, uh, the, the uh, dictionary definition of a principle. I wrote this down. Foundational truth is what God uses to affect positive heart change. Positive heart change in a positive, godly, good direction is what God is looking for. Not just from a few, from everybody, including me, including everyone in here, including the rest of Christianity. That's what God's doing. He uses his own foundational truth, consistent from the beginning, to affect a positive heart change in his followers. And here's the point, and here's the, the essence, the summary of chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. When foundational truth is compromised, eroded, ignored, or denied, a negative effect will take place in the hearts of the people, and consequences will follow. It's just what's going to happen. It's what's already happened. We live in a culture, and, and, and <clears throat> I've been asked about this several times. I'm not here to just rag on the culture. I would, I, would, uh, I would give about everything I had to be able to travel back in time to about the 1800s. You were already there, Mom. It's always somebody. The understanding of God's Word and how it was applied, uh, we, we, we don't have a clue. 
I believe. The way that people conducted themselves, I'm not saying it was sinless in that time. I'm not saying they didn't have sexual immorality issues in that time. But their understanding was completely different. We all live, everybody in here has seen the change or changes in different waves of our own current history how sexuality has changed. It's really gone back quite a ways. Now, none of this is, like I said, none of this is, is foreign to the times in the Bible or the times in the New Testament or the times in the Old Testament. But definitely things have changed. And I think we can agree, not necessarily for the better. Now in Corinth, to give you a little view into what was going on there, in Corinth there was these foundational truths that were not only being violated, but as Paul writes out here, they were being bragged about. They were being bragged about, that there was sexual immorality among you in the church, and these things, they were, they were proud, he says. Look there, uh, where is it in verse? And you were puffed up, verse 2, and you were puffed up. You're proud about it. They're excited about it. The term sexual immorality here is from the Greek word pornea. It broadly refers to all types of sexual active, activity outside of marriage. Pornea is where we get our word pornographic, pornography. That's the, that's the root word. That's where our English word comes from. And it's anything outside of God's prescribed bounds for sex. God's prescribed bounds is inside the covenant marriage between a man and a woman. Originally, pornea just referred to um, the idea of going to prostitutes. But before the New Testament times, the Jewish community used the word to refer really to, it was kind of gotten broadened out into extramarital sex, including all other forms, homosexuality, <clears throat> homosexuality and the like. Um, the reason why, and you'll see this Greek word, again, it's all through the, the New Testament. Jesus used this word talking about uh, marriage issues in Matthew. But the reason pornea so often appears, in the first, appears first in the New Testament sinless is because the area of sex was one of the most dramatic places where the ethics of Greek culture clashed with the ethics of Jesus. Do we get that? The, 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 what was normal in their culture, what was a normal set of ethics to have in their culture, just kept banging heads with what Jesus taught, with what Jesus uh, taught his followers, what was passed down from the apostles, into the church leadership, into the, the uh, elders, the church fathers. So sexual immorality then was, accepted, <clears throat> was an accepted fact of life for the common person in Greek culture, but it was not to be so among Jesus' followers. It was very accepted in the Greek culture. I was sharing with Tammy this uh, historical kind of perspective that I was looking up this week. In the Greek culture, in those times... Corinth, all these major Greek cities that, that Paul had visited, that new Christian churches were springing up in and people's lives were being changed. There was just this friction in this particular area. And in that culture, very common, very common was this mentality that you have concubines for pleasure, or you have mistresses for pleasure, you have concubines for the care of the body, and you would have a wife for having legitimate kids. 
That's how they rolled. That's what was normal for them. We look at that and say, but that was normal. It was really normal for them. I don't think things are too terribly different today, although we don't use those particular words or those ideas. Uh, but to quote Vody uh, Bauckham, talking about this hookup culture that we live in, um, he, he pretty much sets the bar in today's culture here. He says this in one of his sermons. He says, sex today is a little more formal than exchanging phone numbers. Sex in today's culture, we live in a, if, if older folks, if you don't know what I'm talking about, ask somebody in their 20s or 30s, but we live in a hookup culture. People hook up, they'll hook up for a night, boom, they're gone. They hook up, you know, whatever. It's come and go, it's anything goes. And his perspective is, and I have a tendency to agree with him, that it's a little more formal, just a little bit more formal than trading phone numbers or contacts on your cell phone. That's kind of where we're at. And all of the statistical evidence that you can find on the internet, if you go to the CDC website, you will see in full display, look at their website, go to STDs, and you can see all of the statistical evidence that shows that that's exactly where our culture is. STDs, sexually transmitted diseases, are on the rise uh, across the board. There were some times, there was, there was some wave to it, you know, several years ago. There were some drops in a couple of categories, the stats show. But on the average, it's all on the rise. It's a reflection of where our country is at. It's a reflection of where our culture is and what we think about sexual activity. And to a degree, I would say that our culture is not too much different than what Paul was writing here in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. We have a tendency to kind of cheer it on too. Or at the very least, or at the very least, there's a wink of approval. And there's two aspects to this problem that Paul is addressing. He addresses the unrepentant, proud, and puffed up sinning Christian brother. Somebody that's actively engaged and is unrepentant in their sin happens to be sexually uh, in, involved with his stepmom, I guess we would call her. The other issue that he talks about is the effect, the perpetual effect that sin has on the church. The perpetual effect that sin has on the church. So God has some solutions here for us to Re-examine. Let's dive back in. First, he deals with the Christian brother. First, he deals with the Christian brother. This is a difficult passage. This is hard for us to comprehend. I think for a lot of us, it violates all that we think about God in some way. Because what Paul does here, in reality, if we really stop and think about the big overarching problem in churches or in, in the church, he's using the Corinthians church, is that there's sin in the camp that's undealt with. There's sin in the camp that's undealt with. And how are we going to, how, how, does, how does that happen? And it seems like the advice that he gives seems unloving on one, on one hand, doesn't it? Am I the only one that says like, okay, so we're just going to kick this dude out? 
I'll be honest with you, we've kicked people out of here before because they were a threat to the body. We've asked them, hey, sorry, we can't let you in. It wasn't in the area of sexual immorality. It's not that. It was a different situation. But we said no. Your actions and your words pose a threat. Sorry. And that's for their sake, and that's for your sake. Doesn't bring me any pleasure to say that or talk about it. It's, it's, it's painful as a church leader to walk through these types of things. It's not easy. It seems unloving. The reality is, in the big scope of things, it's probably one of the most loving things that we can do. So the first thing that Paul says, hey, get him out of here. Get him out of here. The removal from, protect, from the protection, the provision, the blessings, and the fellowship of God's people is what Paul was talking about. And it wasn't for no reason. It wasn't for the sake of just isolation alone that he said, hey, can't have it. He had a purpose in this thing. He had a purpose in this thing. Look right there in verse... Four, he says, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, like, all right, we're leveraging God's name and his power. When you're gathered together along with my spirit, in other words, I'm there with you in spirit. We both are, serve the same God and are under the control and the leading of the Holy Spirit. So along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. And here's the reason why that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he said, get him out of here, but with a purpose. Get him out of here, but with a purpose. It sounds really similar to what Jesus had to say in Matthew 18 and Mark 9. And here's my paraphrase. It's better to enter the kingdom of God with missing parts. Jesus talked about the eye, the hand. It's better to enter the kingdom of God missing pieces and enter than it is to not enter at all. And so he's saying, hey, get him out of here. Let him do what he's going to do. Somewhere in that process, God's still working with him. God's still calling to him. God's still inviting him in, calling him to repentance. But let him do what he's going to do and let God do what only God can do that maybe he'd be saved in the end. That's a tough call. That's a tough call, but it's a call that has to be made. And Paul's saying that's why he leverages in the way that he does in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me tell you, shunning is a difficult discipline to endure. We use that kind of a modern term. It's, if you think of the idea of shunning, a lot of it is wrapped around the Anabaptist movement. The, you know, the Amish, they practice shunning if you violate you know, their ordinances and, and, and are in unrepentant sin. You know, they call you to repentance. They call you to repentance. If you continue in your unrepentance, they say, sorry, you can't be part of our community. And they set them outside. And it's a difficult thing to endure. It's a diffi- we don't practice it, in, in, I don't think, in, in large in the church because I think, honestly, we've never been taught how. I don't think we have. And there's some keys in this passage on how it's done appropriately. 
Now, if it's, I think it's obvious then to deduce that if you're doing it inappropriately, some different attitudes and actions will occur. And there will be spite in the heart. There'll be, he uses the word malice. and you know, there, There'll be all of those types of things. But there are, there are some keys on how to walk this out biblically and lovingly. But the reality is, is that God uses shunning to bring people to a point of true repentance, which is the positive heart change that we mentioned at the beginning. It's a positive heart change that God is wanting for his people. Let me tell you what. Jesus died for this guy. He sacrificed himself for this guy, just like the rest of us, just like everybody else in the church in Corinth. Jesus died for that guy. He, he spread his arms and took on that man's sin so that he could live. That's how much he loves him. That's how much he cares for him. That's how much he wants positive heart change in this guy. It's difficult. In that day, part, part of the reason, the second reason I think that we struggle not to embrace or understand this idea of setting somebody out, it seems unloving. It seems uh, like you're giving up on somebody. It seems like the rudest or the meanest thing to do when in fact it might be the very thing that God uses. Could be the very thing that God uses to affect change. And that's a hard, that's a hard statement to say. I, I, I'm not going to joke anybody. Part of the reason, uh, the secondary reason that we don't understand this is because we didn't live in a culture. We, we, we live disconnected lives. Let's be honest about that, right? We live, we live largely disconnected life. In the first century, they were interdependent daily on one another for survival. They lived under Roman persecution, Roman oppression. They were constantly being hassled. They were constantly being jeered. They were constantly, you know, uh, the underdog. They had to band together in the sense of survival. You see that all through the New Testament. These churches, not only did they band together as individual groups, they banded together as bigger groups, churches supported church that was, you know, one church, a Jerusalem church kind of under huge persecution. Other churches, such as the church in Corinth, was asked, hey, can you give a little here to help out? I mean, that's the bigger overarching picture here. But those small churches were dependent upon one another. And let me tell you, you can look around the room, and we can honestly say... We don't have that as a normal part of our everyday existence. We don't. Should we? I'm just going to leave that question hanging. Should we? Should we have that type of connected relationships? Should there be a, 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 a healthy, I'm going to put it this way, I'm going to use this word on purpose, should there be healthy dependency upon one another in the Christian churches today? Should there be such a, a sense of family and connection and, and, and relationship with one another that the hard, hard things and the hard conversations can happen and they can happen with a certain amount of either frequency but definitely a certain amount of love so you don't have to go through this conversation for five weeks talking about a topic just to discover, oh, they actually did love me. No, you had a depth of relationship that reflected that on the first conversation 
and you knew that what they were bringing to the table was for your benefit, that type of interdependency, that type of relationships within the church, I think it makes my question kind of redundant. I believe that we're called to that level. Those depths of relationships, those depths of connections within the church. But because we don't have them, and haven't had them for several generations, when a situation comes along like this, and the church has to make a stand, off they go. And what do they do? They just step on down the road to the next church. That's what happens. We all know that that's true. Where there's friction, where there's tension, where relationships are tested and tried, where sin's being confronted, but there's resistance. Sooner or later, if that relationship, if the bridge of that relationship kind of can't handle that weight, something's going to break, something's going to give, and somebody's going to leave. That's what normally happens. That's the way it goes. So in the church in America, we struggle to do chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. And to a certain degree, maybe not literally, but we've gone, eh, let's not do that. Let's not embrace that type of Christianity. Let's not embrace that type of being real with somebody that's in sin. Because I'm scared to death that they're going to think that I don't love them. They're scared to death that, that, that they're going to feel judged. Well, Paul uses that word. The end of the chapter. Aren't you not judging those inside? Like, aren't you making some... Aren't there some, you know... Can't you come to some conclusions about what's going on? And the problem is, is that in an American church... We don't like to come to those conclusions because that means that those principles stand rock solid. The problem is is those principles stand rock solid whether the church comes to the conclusion or not. And then we pay the consequences and the individual pays the consequences and the church pays the consequences. So why not just say enough of this and start living biblically and doing what's right and doing it in love Doing it the way that Christ exampled it done. Doing it the way that the apostles demonstrated it being done. Really slid into my second point already. When it comes to the effect on the church, Paul uses an illustration here to drive home his point. A a concept from the Jewish culture and understanding how to make bread. The only bread I've ever made was in a bread maker. It wasn't that good. I don't, when we were first married, we bought bread. Remember that? We bought that bread maker. We thought we were really something. Oh, I bought the bread maker and I thought I was really something. <laughs> That's totally possible. I thought, hey, 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 we're on to something here. All you have to do, you, everybody, do you guys know what a bread maker is? So, way back in the early 90s, way back, you could buy a, a bread maker, and it was like the whole machine, uh, metal center, had a little like uh, stirring thing in the bottom. You just put all the ingredients in, put the lid on, push the button, it'll stir it, it'll let it rise. It'll stir it, it'll let it rise, it'll let it settle, and then it'll bake it. And when you're done, you flip it upside down on the counter, and you have a loaf of bread. 
That's a bread maker. Uh, I grew up in a home with a bread maker that made bread. And so anyway, Paul uses this illustration here, though. And it really doesn't matter if you're making bread in a bread maker or if your mom's making bread or cinnamon rolls or donuts or my mind is really wandering at this point. (laughs) Paul uses this illustration from the Jewish culture that was not just a part of what they ate, but it was a part of their understanding of who God was. It was a part of their understanding of what God's expectation was. It was a part of their worship to God. He uses this illustration. He starts by saying, hey, your glorying is not good. He really addresses a couple of attitudes. A, first, they're puffed up pride up above. The fact that they're not mourning for this man. A couple of keys on how to go right about this kind of thing. Which I'll stop in my switching to bread here and say... Uh, if in the process of walking something like this out in the future as a church, uh, the only way that this can be done is with the right understanding and the right heart attitude about our own sin. Paul calls him to mourn for this guy. Paul calls him to mourn for this guy. And so we can get all riled up with righteous indignation about sin, But that will not be effective unless we have a clear understanding of our own propensity in these areas, our own struggles, and that we're done, that we've dealt with them appropriately. So now back to the bread. Leaven is repeatedly used in the Bible as a symbol for sin. And leavened bread was uh, was made in kind of this perpetual fashion. That's why I use this idea, the same word in the idea of the effect of perpetual sin on the church. Leaven was made in somewhat of a, or leavened bread was made in somewhat of, per, of a perpetual fashion. A portion of each uh, uh, loaf or, or uh, batch of bread was kept aside to make a new batch. Then when it's mixed into that new uh, lump, it invades every part and the whole batch is infected. That's the idea. So when you're making leavened bread, they, wouldn't, they didn't just have an endless supply of yeast like you ladies have today. Uh, or you could call the neighbor and say, hey, I need some yeast. No, they would take a portion of what they had, save it, then incorporate that into the next time they made bread so that that, that batch, that lump would have leaven and rise. And then they would take a chunk of that off and set it aside, cook up the rest, and the process just went on and on. And it was perpetual in that sort of a way. When it's mixed up, it invades every part, and the whole batch is infected. That's the effect of accepting sin in a church. That's the effect, Paul says. This picture, this idea, is the, 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 what he's trying to get across. The picture in our minds is, is that once it's mixed up, it can't be separated. Once it's blended together... It can't be unblended. You can't go to a, a, a lump of dough and say, well, I think I'll just take the yeast out of this thing. It, ladies, is it possible? You tell me. I'm a consumer. I'm not a maker. I'm a bread consumer. Is it possible? No, it's not possible. You know that it's not possible. 
And Paul uses that same illustration to say, this is what sin's like in the church when it's left unattended. This is what sin is like in the church when it's left undealt with. This is the effect it has. And at first it might be under the radar. At first it might be, you know, keep it quiet. At first it might be, wow, this is not good. Down the road, now 40, 50, 60 years after the secular revolution, we, we can't tell what's what. We can't. God can. We've got to get back to his ways and his principles. But that's the effect that Paul's saying. Hey, it uh, doesn't happen. And he turns back into, Paul turns back into the gospel and reminds them, as he's done in previous chapters, whenever there's an issue that he's dealing with, a reported back problem, he takes them back to the gospel and reminds them of who Jesus is and that Jesus is their example then in the areas of purity. Jesus is our example. Jesus is our example for purity. What does he say there? He was there and he's our Passover sacrifice. And in Jesus, we can experience all the blessing that God has as we do this, as we follow this. Where it says the leaven, the sin of malice and wickedness needs to be replaced with the unleavened or the sinless bread of sincerity and truth. That's the action that's going on. That's the action that needs to happen for all of us. In whatever area, he talks primarily about sexual sin, but he he lists off all kinds of different sins in this passage. So we replace, we allow God to extract, deal with, in our repentance, this idea of malice, which is hatred that leads to murder, really, and wickedness, anything that's ungodly, Anything that's ungodly, that's wickedness. Anything that doesn't reflect the goodness of God, it's the idea of wickedness. There's a lot that goes with that. Those get replaced as we allow God to work in our lives, as we remember that this is what Jesus died for, this is what he sacrificed himself for, that then we become the unleavened or the sinless bread with sincerity which is another old-fashioned word for authenticity. Authenticity is what sincerity means. Right? That there's something authentic. That you're real. That you're the same person here as you are when you go home. And you're the same person here as you would be uh, at the restaurant when they don't cook your steak right. And you're the same person here as you would be in the marketplace. So there's an authenticness to your walk and to your life that's undeniable. With the unleavened or the sinless bread of sincerity and also with truth. And also with truth. So we can walk in authenticity and we can walk in truthfulness. And the problem is, the problem is, is we're tempted, just like Adam and Eve were tempted. We're tempted to keep pulling a fig leaf over us. We're tempted to, to hide ourselves in that way. 
Hide away from other people our issues. Hide away from other people what's going on in our life. Hide away, hide away, we like to hide away. Keep the door shut, let Jesus deal with these areas of our life. They're the most significant areas. I want to keep this part to myself because I'm ashamed of what he might see in that part of my life. That's not being truthful. That's not being authentic. And you're going to suffer. If it's me, I'm going to suffer. Broaden that out, the church is going to suffer. The churches suffer when there's a lack of authenticity and a lack of truth in the people dealing with these issues. And of course, then he rolls right into dealing that there's different approaches. There's a difference then between sin in the camp and sin in the world. Now, if you wonder where that term sin in the camp comes from, the Old Testament, there was a battle uh, reeling for the... uh, I didn't write down the reference. Some of you super smart guys can help me out. There was a battle that went on and uh, the commandment was is everything gets destroyed. And a fellow decided, eh, everything? Everything gets destroyed? So he kept it a little for himself. Just like Adam and Eve hiding behind the, the, uh, the, the walls of fig leaf, the shame, <laughs> you know, that invoked the fig leaf. He decided to hide it under the tent, under the floor of his tent. And Achan, things started going sideways for Israel after that. The fellow's name was Achan. They couldn't seem to get a victory. They couldn't seem to move forward. Didn't seem like they ever got a win. Didn't seem like they ever got a break. So finally, whoa, there's an issue here. There's sin in the camp. There's probably a lot of references to sin in the camp in the Old Testament, but this is a particular one. Do you remember what that is? Joshua 7. That's right. Uh, Achan paid for the problems of the whole camp with his life. Him and his family were taken out to pay for that sin. It was a harsh penalty, for sure. It was a harsh penalty, for sure. He paid for that sin with his life and the lives of his loved ones. There's a different approach for sin in the camp that Paul's talking about here in chapter 5 than there is for sin in the world. Paul did not want the Corinthians Christians to expect godly behavior from ungodly people. Like we burn way too many calories in Christianity thinking about that, worrying about that. We do. And, and, and I'm just as guilty as anybody else. As I mentioned earlier, I think there's times where I probably talk too much about our culture in a negative light. That leads into this same concept. So I'm preaching as much to me as anybody. But the idea is, is that, that, that Paul's talking about is we cannot expect godly behavior from ungodly people. To disassociate from sinners in a sinful world meant that, hey, you're going to have to go out of the world which for them was impossible at that time. We've shot how many people outside of our atmosphere? They still haven't found any <laughs> godly or ungodly people out there. But Paul's making kind of this point saying, hey, it's not possible. Why are you trying to do this? Expect godly behavior from the ungodly. 
It's not even reasonable. You would have to leave. Surprisingly, though, as I mentioned a bit ago, this is exactly the approach that many of us, many people take to holiness and Christian living, to get as far away from the world as possible. There is an aspect where we need to be separate. I understand that. And a biblical principle that we shouldn't just, you know, it shouldn't be this collage of the, the world's ethics and Jesus' ethics. Paul's clearly teaching against this here. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about an expectation that's out there. Instead, without approving of the sin of sinners in this world, we should expect that they would be sinners. It shouldn't be a surprise, as he lists off here, it shouldn't be a surprise or offend us that those who do not know yet the Lord haven't come to repentance and confessed their sins, haven't trusted in Christ as their Savior. It shouldn't surprise or offend us that they would be covetous, which uh, simply, that word simply means, I have to have more. I have to have more. That's what covet means. I have to have more. Give me more. Give me more. Give me more. I want all of your stuff. I want your stuff. I want... That's the idea when it comes to covet. Just give me more. I must have it. It shouldn't surprise us when they're idolaters, which boils down to a quick definition of placing faith and trust in someone or something other than God. That's the idea of being an idolater. You're placing your faith and trust in someone uh, somebody else that claims to be a prophet, somebody else that claims to be God, somebody else that claims to be, you know, deity, so, someone else, or something, something else. You know, when I was a kid, there was kids that walked around in school with rabbit's foots in their pocket. Did you know that was a thing? A little keychain thing? And I was like, why, why do you have that? I remember it was like, I was in like fourth or fifth grade. Why do you have that? Oh, it brings me luck if I rub it. It does. My question was, is what happens when it goes through the laundry when it's still in your pants? Kind of like a raccoon tail. Trusting in someone or something else other than God. Come in all shapes and sizes. See a ton of it in the Bible. It's really a core issue all through cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation. A reviler, a reviler, that's an old-fashioned word that we don't use anymore, but a reviler is somebody that essentially is a character assassin. Somebody that's a character assassin, they're just constantly just, you know, shooting arrows about somebody, and yeah, are you sure about them? And, oh, I, I went, uh, bringing up doubt, bringing up, you know, this uh, subtle uh, aggressive or passive aggressive accusations about somebody else. That's what a reviler is. Somebody that's a character assassin, a drunkard, habitually under the influence of something other than the Holy Spirit. That's what it would be a drunkard would mean, I suppose, mostly in, wrapped around using booze, but could be something else. Extortioner, those who steal by violence. We should expect these things. We shouldn't be surprised or offended. We should actually expect it in the world, but we must confront it in the church. This is the summary of Paul's whole chapter. Like, shouldn't surprise us, shouldn't catch us off guard, but if it's in the church, we've got to deal with it. That's his point. Like, this can't come, this can't happen unchecked. It can't go on unchecked. 
sharing with a fellow earlier that there's a uh, another principle in play. You lose me? There I am. There I are. Uh, there's a principle in play. You say how uh, you, the question might be in your mind, and it's kind of been in my mind all week. How do you how do we make a turn then as a church? Like if this is where things are, it's where things were in that day. But if it's still true today, if we still have struggles in the same area, where how in the world do we go a different direction? How in the world do we do we uh, where where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? Well, Paul starts into this next little piece at the end of the chapter, saying, "Hey, uh, a." got to make a judgment call. That judgment call has to be based on biblical truth. That judgment call has to be uh, carried out uh, with, with love, with compassion, with understanding. But love, compassion, and understanding are not always soft. We have an understanding that they always are. Sometimes the, 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 the most loving thing that you can do, and parents, the most loving thing that you can do is a simple two-letter word, no. 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 That might be the most loving thing that you tell your kids in that moment. Seems uh, pretty dry. Seems pretty heartless. It seems pretty, uh, uh, you know, rude. Dad, you're being so rude. I don't care. The answer is no. There's been times in my life where the word no actually was my rescue. There's been times in, in, in the life of our family growing up, or in the lives of, my, uh, uh, of our family, as my kids have been growing up, where no was the most loving response that could be held out. We have to get away from this idea that, that uh, saying yes to everything is the most loving thing you can do. That's not biblical, not in any way. We have to rightly divide the word, rightly uh, explain to our kids and, and within the context of the church what the truth is. So how do we make a turn? How does the church come out of this thing? How do we do, how do we exercise chapter 5? Uh, and bear in mind, uh, the next several chapters are every bit as touchy. How do we make a turn in our own personal lives? How do we make a turn for our marriages, for our families, for the sake of our kids? There has to be a couple things in play. A, parents, I'll talk to parents first. Actually, I'll talk to everybody first because if, even if you're a grandparent, you can embrace this uh, in, in a supportive role for your adult kids and your grandkids or whatever spot in life that you're in, this can be embraced by everybody, is that we have to have vision to see where God wants us to go for the future. 
like in a harsh moment of chapter 5, 1 Corinthians, God is saying through Paul, that's not the direction that the church needs to go. Stop, go this direction. That sin can't be tolerated in the church. Not perpetual sin. I'm not talking about a once in a while. Paul doesn't say that. He clearly lays out that this guy was in perpetual, unrepentant, lifestyle, full-on sexual immorality. So I'm not talking about the once in a while. Like you, like you pull a trip hammer at the fair, you know, on somebody that, that had a, a one-time issue or a few-time issue. That's not, that's not. I hope we understand this word real clear that way. But how do we deal with the perpetualness of it? What I do know about making the turn is, is it creates tension. There's pressure, there's tension, there's friction, there's resistance. All of these things are true. All of these things will be true. When everybody here, I presume, anybody walk to church today? I'm scanning the room. I can't say for definite. doesn't appear to that anybody walked to church today. Now, <clears throat> depending upon if you left your keys in the ignition and the lights on, you might be walking home. Hopefully not. But I will guarantee you one thing is true. When you get in your car and you leave this parking lot this, this afternoon, is that the minute that you stop and then start to go, you might not experience it, but your car is experiencing friction, tension, resistance, as you start to pull out onto the highway left or right. That's just the nature of, of, of moving objects. It doesn't matter if you're in a plane. You make that, you feel that. I mean, how many times has Dennis shared these stories of, you know, being in a, in a uh, fighter jet and you make these big banks and the G-forces are just pushing you down? Uh, not comfortable, right? Am I wrong? Fun, but not always comfortable. There's pressure, there's resistance, there's friction. If you're in a tractor... Like, my whole job, when I'm tilling the earth, has everything to do with tension and friction. Because you're dragging one thing through another. Talk about friction. Things get heated quickly, right? Making a turn for a church in this area is going to naturally bring these things on. That's just the essence of it. The question that has sat for decades now is if the long-term run, the goal at the end, is worth the friction. You have to ask yourself that for your families, for your marriages. Ask ourselves that for this church. Is what God is going to do in the end worth his ways in the middle and I believe they are I'm not saying it's easy I'm not saying it comes cheap I'm not saying it's you know I'm not saying this in any way light hearted uh, if we don't make some sort of a stand in this generation we will leave that responsibility to the next we have to choose I'm choosing to make the stand now. I'm choosing to say, no, enough of this is foolishness. We've lived through enough of it. We've dealt with enough of it. In my opinion, you want my opinion, 
not what the Bible says, but I think the Bible would say that enough's enough. So it's time to bring the heat in a loving and compassionate way to say no. It's not how we do it. I can't force any of you to make a, a change in your life. My job is to bring the message. My job is to bring, is, I'm just the man. We're just, you can be the mailman for one another. You bring the message, God makes a change. That's how it works. But we can't be complacent and just let it ride on in the fellowship, in the church at, excuse me, at large. It doesn't work that way. So God's pleading with us, I believe. Rather, maybe he's commanding us to deal with these issues ourselves. 1 Peter 4 tells us that judgment begins with inside the house of the Lord. The long-term benefits are well worth the short-term pain. That's what I want to encourage you with. If this is an issue for you, this is an issue in your family, it's an issue in our culture. It affects everybody to some degree or another. If it's not an issue, keep teaching and training your kids about these things. Keep making an impact. Keep pointing people to Christ. Keep pointing people to purity. Don't be afraid to call it out when it's, when it's you know, somehow viewed as lighthearted or whatever. I get it. I've been in that spot. I've not called it out at times. I regret that. We can't shy away from these issues just because they're uncomfortable. And there's nobody more uncomfortable about this with me. But there's nobody that's probably, well, I shouldn't say nobody, but I've got a passion to say enough is enough. I did that when I was 19. I still have that same conviction to say, no, this has got to stop. Like, I have 27 years of blessing in my life that, dem- that, it, that is evidence for me that obeying God's word, despite what my flesh wanted, was the right thing to do. A wife and three kids. Now a little one on the way. Oh, she's not here. But you guys get my meaning. So there's a generational impact that we can have when we put a stake in the ground and say, all right, we're going to go a different direction here. We're not going to stand for it. We're going to call it out. We're going to deal with it. And you might walk out of here and say, that's too hot for me. That's your choice. But your leadership here is dedicated to you guys. And I'm calling all of us to be dedicated to one another, specifically in this area. There's going to be some more areas as we go through this book that are hard to deal with. Again, tension, friction, different views, different understandings. Love, compassion, forgiveness, understanding, having a long range of view that we're going to walk together and do life together is a necessity. But clearly Paul puts a stake down and says, no, not now. That guy can have body parts that rot off in that culture, but if his soul is saved... You've done your job. That's a tough word to bite on, but one that has to be obeyed. Worship team, let's go back to worship.